All right. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we have children here. Yes, I thought you guys were going to stick around and listen to the message. You guys got, if you guys sit around and would listen to the message, you guys have to be very, very quiet because people are sleeping in here. <laughs> I don't want to wake them up. No, I'm just kidding. Bye, kids. These kids are going to mosey on out. If, if you ever, if no, uh, we'll see you guys in a little bit. I'll see you guys in a little bit. Um, if you ever, know, you ever want to know what mosey looks like, this is what mosey looks like. Mosey, mosey, they're moseying on out. Let, from the rest of us, let us open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I already got fooled by the Holy Spirit, huh? <laughs> Full of love. Amen. And uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Yeah, there's a lot of information here that I want to unpack. And I gave it all to you today. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be able to get through it all. But we'll see what happens. Uh, because when we're coming to a Spirit-filled church. Now, there's a few things that you need to know. This is our title for today, a Spirit-filled church. And, and, and Paul's already been talking to us about how to walk in the Spirit. And when he says walk in the Spirit, he's basically saying uh, be a Spirit-filled individual. And when I say church, or whenever you hear the word church, most people refer to the building as a church. And you know that this is, just, this is the church building. It's the church sanctuary. It's the church uh, grounds. And so we might at times even say, I'm going to church. I'm going to the church. Or I'm going, you know, we'll, we'll meet at the church. And what you're basically saying is because the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And ekklesia, ek, means out or called out. Those that are called out of the world or called out of this culture. So uh, as we get into this message, I just want to make a couple of things clear. We're going to go back and review some things that we've already talked touched on before, and, uh, and so it might take me a little bit, a uh, little bit longer to un, you know to start to unpack all of this. But the church being spirit filled, when you hear me say the church, you are the church. Okay, you are the you, every individual is the church. You are the one that is called out, and when we come together in a gathering, we are the church gathering or those that have gathered together. And in, uh, together, we are the church, the church. But each one of you is the church, and then together we are the body of Christ, the church. And I, I'm hoping that makes a little bit of sense, just to kind of clarify a few things, because we know that this building cannot get filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not fill inanimate objects, as much as many people might claim that the Spirit is here in this room. If He's here, He's in your heart, He's in your life. If you're redeemed, and if you can sing as never before, it's because you have the Spirit of God within you. So we're going to go over that today, and this is what Paul is talking about. There's a few things he wants to uh, show us. And so he's already started in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, walk worthy of the call that you have received. He wants us to walk worthy. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God. And so this is what he's been leading up to. And after this verse, verse 18, by the way, nothing else in the Bible will make sense. Nothing else in the Bible can you do if verse 18 was not in there. Otherwise, if verse 18 was not in Scripture, in the Bible, nothing else could be accomplished because you need the indwelling, the power, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately for a lot of people, they have a misconception of what that means, so we're going to try to clarify that today according to what the Bible says. And we're going to go over a few, uh, few things on how it is that we are to be, uh, what, what it looks like. What does a ch- uh, Spirit-filled church look like? What does a Spirit-filled individual look like. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask for any prayer requests or petitions that you may have. And if you want to go ahead and just lift those up right now, I'd like to pray for you. Yes, James. 
Okay. Oh, it's okay. Go ahead. She's been missing for about a month. Okay. Well, we pray that she has recovered safely. Ramona recovered safely, yes, and found, I should say, more than anything else. All right. All right. Anybody else? Yes, Martha. For Leonard and Brandy, right? Do you mind if I share a little bit? I, I think we mentioned this last week, but uh, Martha's grand... Mar Martha used to be our secretary here years ago, and then she got a, a, a better offer. No. <laughs> so she's been very busy, uh, and uh, she used to bring her granddaughter with, uh, with her sometimes. Uh, she, what, how old was she back then? She was probably about 10? 10? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Well, uh, just recently she passed away. Uh, she was 20, 20 years old, and uh, complications of a lot of other things. And so it, it, I don't want to say it was kind of expected, but even when it's expected, it's, it's terrible. And uh, we do want to lift up the family, all of you that are experiencing this, Martha. And it's good to see you here again. Good to see you. You know that this is where you need to be, amongst the family. And we want to love on you and let you know that, okay? Um, oh, and, and just so you know... Um, well, you know what, I'll, I'll talk about that later during the members' meeting. Um, yeah. Anybody else? Prayer requests? I know, huh? After something like that, it says, okay, well, I guess my prayer requests aren't really that. Yes, Ken, I'm sorry. Kelly, yeah. Kelly's been really going through some stuff. And I'd like to say for the last few months, wait, years, what, almost a decade or so, <laughs> for a long time. And we're going to keep praying for Kelly, all right? And we're going to pray for your families as well as we do that. Because we know that a spirit-filled church prays with all earnestly. Amen? Father in heaven, we do come before you first and foremost, recognizing your goodness and your greatness, your holiness. You are holy. And there is nothing in this whole universe that compares to you. You outshine the billions of stars that are out there. And nothing can be put up against you, Lord, that you will not out-glorify. And there is nothing that we can do to add to your glory. We, there's nothing that we can do to add to your magnification. We can't make you any bigger than what you already are. All we can do is make you bigger in our life. And uh, we can proclaim your goodness to others because of what you've done for us, the salvation that we share, the redemption, and the cost that it, it, it costs you to, to have us saved. And Father, we come before you this morning humbly, recognizing that without you, without anything that you've given us, Lord, we'd be nothing. And so we recognize that you are here, you're in the hearts of each individual that has been redeemed. And we recognize, Lord, your power and your strength, your sovereignty and how you put it all together. And knowing all this, Lord, we still come to you with, with prayer petitions and these requests because we know that you already have these things laid out. And whatever the outcome might be, Father, we know that you're going to be there. We do pray for healing in, in, uh, in, in everyone's life. But Father, we pray that according to your will. The way Jesus prayed, that you take that cup from him. The way Jesus prayed earnestly in the garden with great drops of blood that poured from his body as if it was sweat. And he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. And then he responded in his own word, but not my will. Your will be done. And Father, you knew what was best at that time. 
Though it wasn't a very pretty picture, the murder, the humiliation, the, all the antagonistic words and hate that was poured out on Jesus Christ by those that he came to save. We know that that was not a beautiful picture, but Father, you ultimately knew what was best. And so we pray in the same manner. Father, we ask humbly, number one, to change us to the situation. You've already got it all set out. To change us in the midst of the storm. And whatever the case may be, in, in Ramona's case, Lord, whatever's going on in her life, for, for no one to notice for a month, Lord, there's something else going on there. And I pray that you just help the family to come to grips and to help to find Ramona first and foremost. And that she too comes to a saving knowledge of who you are. And I do lift up to you, Brandy and, and Leonard, and the loss of their child. And it's such a hard thing to do and a difficult thing for a grandmother to experience to see her kids have to go through this grieving process as she herself grieves as well. And I pray, God, that you strengthen them, that you bring the comfort that only comes from you, that you strengthen them and comfort them to help them in this time of trouble so that in turn they may be able to comfort others. And we continue to pray for Kelly and, and just uh, working in her life. And, and Father, I know that you've kept her this long and you continue to hold on to her and you continue to give her bursts of energies. And, and when she can and she's able to, I know that she's always here. And I pray, Father, that, uh, that as she hears the message of this, this morning, that it gives her hope and comfort as well. And Father, we do pray for uh, just the, the rest of the church family here, for those that are struggling in life, those that are struggling with relationships, those that are struggling in, in their own job, uh, in their own works and re- job relationships. And just this whole pandemic thing that is just taking an ugly toll. We pray, God, your, your peace upon everyone, that we do not have fear, that we submit ourselves first and foremost to who you are. And, and Lord, fear has no place in a spirit-filled individual. And when your spirit fills us, and this is a command, it's not a suggestion. When, you, when your spirit fills us and, and you're commanding us to be filled by your spirit, there is no fear. There's only hope and there's only anticipation of the things to come. We know you have it all in your hands. So thank you once again, Lord, for this morning, for this time that we have to share this word and, and that we grow from it, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says... Amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Let me go ahead and read it in context of what we're going through. And I'm going to go back over to, uh, starting back in verse 15. Paul's already said, be imitators of God. He says, you know, he says in verse 3, uh, the sexually moral or, or all impurity or the covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In other words, it shouldn't even be a part of your lifestyle. You shouldn't even be associated with it. There's None of that stuff should be even, there shouldn't even be a hint of that in your life. Uh, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is one of the first, well, not one of the first times, but Paul repeatedly says, always in thanksgiving, but in thanksgiving, uh, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually moral or impure, or who is covetedness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light." 
in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And we talked about how to find God's will last week. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Here he comes again, Paul says. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What Paul has done here in this chapter, he's taken the contrasts. This is what you're supposed to be. Don't be sexually immoral, but be pure. Don't walk in the darkness, walk in light. Don't be foolish, be wise. And so what Paul is doing here is he's doing comparing contrast, comparing contrast. And, and the good thing about this is for most people, they understand that. There is, you know, those that are foolish and those that are wise, and people make foolish mistakes. I've made foolish mistakes. You've made foolish mistakes. And God knows this, and Paul is pointing that out. Make wise decisions. And I mentioned last week, last week I said, if you are first and foremost saved, okay, if you are sanctified or spirit-filled, we're going to talk about that right now, if you are uh, suffering for Christ, if you're serving, if you're filled with God's Word and you're understanding God's Word, then basically you can do whatever you want. And, and I hope that you didn't leave here last Sunday by saying, hey, pastor said I can do whatever I want. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Yes, it's what I mean, but you can do whatever you want and, and to find God's will because everybody's looking for God's will. They want to know God's will. They want to understand God's will. And basically God says, I just want you, first of all, to be saved. I want you to be spirit-filled. I want you to be sanctified. In other words, growing, developing, getting all that crud out of your life and putting in the Holy Spirit. I want you to be involved in God's word in his ministry. And when you're, when you're doing all that, when you're serving, when you're suffering for Christ, not suffering because of your own or my own stupidity, because of dumb things that I've done, I'm going to jail or whatever the case may be because of a ticket or disobeying the law, whatever the case may be. You know, people say that they're suffering. That's not suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ is literally suffering for Christ. You're being, you're, you're being persecuted because of your faithfulness to Christ. And they want you to stop being faithful to Christ. And so when you're doing all of this, then God is pleased. And He gives you, as I mentioned last week, He gives you the desires of your heart. He doesn't give you what you desire. He puts those desires and he gives them to you. And therefore, whatever it is that you do is according to God's will. This is why Jesus said, you can ask anything in my name. See, people take that name it and claim it. Well, I want this and I want that. It's like his God was this big genie. I heard some woman pastor just not long ago get up and says, and she says, you know, the Holy Spirit to me is like the genie in Aladdin. I go, what? <laughs> like the genie in Aladdin. You know, he's blue, and she's trying to describe the Holy Spirit as this genie that gives you whatever you want. And the Holy Spirit, he is not a genie. He is not a Santa Claus. He is not, he, he is a person that empowers you, that strengthens you. And when he talks to you through his word, that is what indwells you. And when you have his word in your heart and his desires in your mind, and when you have his desires and his word in your life, you are filled by the Holy Spirit and you can do just about anything that God has led you to do. 
You don't ask God. I don't pray. God, open this door. God, open that door. God, if you don't want me to go through that door, close it. Oh, there I go. I guess God wanted me to go through that door. So I just walk right through it. That's not how prayer works in the Bible. You don't find anybody praying that way. If it's God's will, I'll do this. And if it's God's will, I won't do that. And I don't do it because I don't want to. I guess it wasn't God's will. And this is how some people operate even in the church. They operate this way. It reminds me of a story of, a, of this atheist that got up and said, you know, if, if, if there's really, and he, he's a professor and he's talking to these students and he's telling them, he says, you know, if there really is a God, he would knock me off this stool. Come on, God. If you really do exist, knock me off my chair. And he closes his eyes and all of a sudden, boom, he knocks, he falls out, he's knocked out and he wakes up and there's a Marine standing over him and says, well, God was busy, so he sent me. <laughs> okay, it doesn't work that way. We don't, a believer, a genuine redeemed believer understands that the word of God is the most important thing. Not my experience, not revelation, not anything else that dreams and visions that people have. You know, people are going, to get, going with dreams and visions and, and all these various types of mystical things. And they get themselves all worked up by something that somebody said or maybe they heard. And they don't even know what the word of God says. They, they put this aside and they operate on experience. When this, beloved, God's word is what God said. God said enough right here. Before I can ever think to even start to imagine that I can hear something from God himself, I've got to be thoroughly versed in this. And once I hear another word, another voice from somewhere else, and if it agrees with God, well, then I don't need that other voice. If, if that book that somebody wrote agrees with what the Word of God already says, then I don't need that. But if it disagrees, of course, of course I don't want it. We had a, a person in our church one time that was, you know, he was very spirit-filled, according to what he used to say. And this is in my early days of, of being a preacher. And, and so, you know, I mean, you take people at their word. You know, he's very pious, very spirit-filled, praying out loud, always doing things. And all of a sudden he says, Pastor, the Lord spoke to me and says, I have to go to this, uh, to, to uh, Arizona, no, New Mexico, I'm sorry, to New Mexico and to minister to the indigenous Indians there. And, and we're going to plant a church and we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I said, all right, well, when are you guys going? I says, well, it's just me. No, no, but what about your wife? Well, God didn't call her. She don't want to go. But he called me, so I got to go. I said, well, that, God doesn't work that way. He says that the both of you are to work together. You work together. You are, your wife is to, supposed to submit to you, and you need to be the head of your wife. And God doesn't send one without the other. He sends you both. Well, not this time. You know, God, you know, he wants me, you know, and I, I tried talking to him about that. And, I, and of course, you know, I, I didn't know a whole lot at that time. And, and I understood that the spirit was talking about, I says, you know, this is incongruent. So eventually the gentleman takes off and he goes and plants churches in New Mexico and, and uh, he got caught up in gambling and drugs and alcohol and by the time you know it, you know, this guy's all drug out. And I asked him, like, so what? You know, he went back to his old stuff. When you are listening to voices that don't agree with God's word, they always lead you astray. And so we talked about that. Look then carefully how you walk, making the best use of your time. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then in verses 18 through 21, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, okay? For that is debauchery, 
But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reference. I don't know. I get excited when I sing. And I'm not a professional by any means of the way. You know, and God doesn't care what I sound, I don't care what you sound, well, okay, let me rephrase that. God doesn't care what you sound like, you know, and he doesn't because he loves a joyful heart. If it's just one or 100 or 1,000, the one voice that is redeemed. And this passage of scripture really just ministered to me today and this last week. And, and, and I, I love to sing and, and I, I wish I could do it more often and probably even more, you know, full time. But my passion is preaching and teaching God's word. Because though as, as powerful as music might be, it is the gospel message that saves people, not the music, the message. So let's take this apart. Number one, a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled individual is controlled by the Holy Spirit is controlled by the Holy Spirit. This verse introduces one of the most crucial texts relating to Christian living. You have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You can't do anything else unless you are controlled by the Holy Spirit. You have to be filled by the Holy Spirit. You have to walk in the Spirit in order to do what God's called you to do. Otherwise, you're doing it on your own strength and power. And so he starts off again, compare and, compare and contrast. Don't get drunk, be filled. Don't be filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Now, one of the things that we have to clear, clarify, first of all, is drinking or not drinking is not of itself a mark and certainly not a measure of spirituality. Because you drink or because you don't drink doesn't mean that you're spiritual or not spiritual, should I say. But spirituality is determined with what we are on the inside. Now, most people especially good-meaning Christians, they, they say, well, the Bible talks about drinking, There's, it talks about wine, and it talks about being happy and, and all those things that take place. You know, and the desire for genuine happiness is given by God. God wants you to be happy. He says, I want to give you life, life in all its abundance, is what Jesus Christ said. And so we find verses like in Ecclesiastes, you know, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. Proverbs says the joyful heart is good medicine. David proclaimed that the presence of God is in the presence of fullness and of joy. And, and so the apostle Paul, John wrote in his first letter not to teach and admonish fellow believers, but that his own joy may be made complete. Jesus Christ wanted his joy to make you complete. So when you add the mixture of wine and all those things to the process of enjoying life, you can find plenty of verses to where it says, you know, well, the Bible talks about it, and so it should be okay. And so that's one way of looking at it, and that's how many people look at it. Nonetheless, Scripture always condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Being drunk to the point of just falling over, losing your faculties, and, and saying whatever you want, and, and being controlled by this wine or whiskey or whatever it is, being controlled by it, that, that is the sin that a lot of people have. And it's a pitfall and a downfall for many people, for many cities, for many countries, for many governments. Many people have done stupid things while they were drunk, said stupid things. I are one. <laughs> you know, I 
said many things. I've done many things. Thank God I'm no longer there. Drunkenness has many degrees. And, and one of the things that it does is it interrupts your normal functions as a believer. And both the Old Testament and New Testament, you know, they talk about drunkenness and they talk about not being drunk. Shortly after the flood, Noah became drunk and acted shamelessly. I don't know if you know this or read this before, but he got so drunk. He laid out, and the Bible says, he laid out naked, and his son went in there and laughed at him. Hey, dad's all naked in there. He's all drunk and passed out. His other brothers came in and says, hey, you know, this is not right. They walked in backwards, and they covered him because they didn't want to see their father exposed. And so even though it was done, it, somebody said to me a while back, they said, you know, it, the Bible is weird. <laughs> and I go, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's just all this stuff that goes on in there, you know, that, that the Bible says that they did this and they did that. And you know, and I go, yeah, the Bible is very, very transparent. It shows man's wickedness and sin. It shows people for who they are. And it doesn't hide anything. And it showed David dancing naked. It showed David, uh, you know, having an affair with Bathsheba. It just goes on and on and on. But the book of Proverbs has many warnings about drinking. And one of the verses that's in your outline, and I'm going to share some other ones with you that are not in there. And hopefully they'll come up. And it says, uh, verse 23 of Proverbs, it says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber or clothe them with rags. You see, drunk, it's not just drunkenness that's a sin, but also gluttony. And gluttony basically is just eating and eating and gorging yourself. And I want more. And, and that's part of our problem in the United States. And we think, I'm okay. At least I'm not getting drunk. Well, the Bible says that they both are a sin. And many people think, well, at least I'm not like that guy in the corner. Or at least I'm not like that guy on the street. Or at least I'm not like that guy at Golden Corral. You know, at least I'm not like, and we point our fingers. No, we have to be careful in moderation. Uh, in, in Proverbs 23, it says, woe. Uh, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. The, the writers of the Proverbs say, you know, these guys have problems, woes, woes, and woes. They have problems, they have sorrows, because once the happiness and the gladness is gone, the sorrow is still there. Once the happiness and all the complaining that you do and try to get over this, this alcoholic binge that you're on, it, it just, it runs away. It's, it's back there, I mean, I should say. Wine is enticing to look at with its bright colors and its bubbling, and, its, and they make it look so nice in commercials. But the Bible says, you know, don't let that lure you in. That's all part of the trick. You see, the temptation hides the hook. Excuse me, the temptation is the bait. And the bait is what hides the hook. And it gets you. Uh, during Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the question is always asked, how many beers does it take for you to become an alcoholic? And people come out with all kinds of answers and whatnot. But it only takes one. Because after that, it's just the next one and the next one. But it only takes one. Proverbs 23, uh, 32 and 33 says, In the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder, another viper or snake. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. In other words, your heart just says whatever it feels like. I don't know if you, is that just me or? Okay, good. I hope not, nobody else has gone through this. Wine is, a, Proverbs 20 verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. 
Drunkenness mocks a person by making him think he is better off instead of worse off. See, when people are drunk and, and to the point, you know, they, they think they're the king of the world until they come crashing down and their Titanic ship sinks. Proverbs 23, 35, this is in your outline. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. Well, of course not, you were drunk. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. Yeah, you know, because you were numb. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. <laughs> it's like, I got to get up. I got I to have another drink because, man, I feel so painful. No? Okay, I still haven't related to anybody. All right, I guess it's just still me. <laughs> I'd have to get up in the morning. What is that, the, the, the dog, that, the hair that bit the dog or something like that? I mean, you know, that's, what was I drinking? Okay, I need some more of that. You know, start all over again. And so all these warnings of drunkenness, Isaiah 5.11 says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning with the Budweiser can, should be put in there, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late even into the evening as Budweiser inflames them. Okay, it didn't say Budweiser. Wine inflames them. An alcoholic is characteristically begins drinking in the morning and continues throughout the whole day. That's just what he does. And he doesn't think he's an alcoholic. He thinks he's okay. As a matter of fact, some people say, you know, I operate better on alcohol. And they do. Some people operate better when they're drunk. And they're, they're better people to be around. That only states the obvious of what we're trying to say here. They are controlled by the substance that they abuse. They are controlled and they cannot operate properly unless they've had something to cut the edge off or to get drunk with and, and be normal. That's not normal. But of course, we deceive ourselves and we think, yes, that is normal. Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Drunkenness, drinking parties, these things are just part of what the culture invites and admits at, at, the, at the very beginning of the pandemic, people were like, okay, we got to stay away. We gotta, you know, and I understand it was, it was very difficult to get together, but there were just some people that, I don't care. And they would have these parties in people's houses and people would call the cops and say, these guys aren't keeping social distance, let alone masks. And people would get all upset because, and these people didn't care because they couldn't drink by themselves. Like George Thorogood, Thorogood says, I think. Anyways, I'm going off on a deep end here. So, so, so the Bible talks about drunkenness as something that it, it, you shouldn't do, but, but at the same time, it, con, it condones it. It condemns it and it condones it. Paul was telling Timothy at one time when he was sick, you know, drink a little bit of wine. Drink a little bit of wine. And, and you know, wine makes the soul happy and it's cheerful. They would use it at festivals. As a matter of fact, when we have the Seder at our church, we don't use the wine, but we use grape juice. And at Seder, they would have four cups of wine filled, and they would drink it, and another one, and drink it. And four cups, they would drink these wines, and then, of course, whatever they had during the meal. So I, I remember, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but one cup, maybe two cups is enough to get me tipsy. Four cups, and then plus whatever you're drinking in your meal. These guys were really celebrating. It was part of the celebration. And so there is this thought of, yes, wine makes you happy, and it helps in the festive uh, mood, but drunkenness is totally talked against it. And there are people that should not drink. I had this one gentleman one time, so he asked me, I says, well, what about drinking? I said, well, Bible does that you shouldn't. Then why did I stop drinking? I said, because it's killing you, brother. You know, he had cirrhosis of the liver. Eventually it did kill him. He died. Because it's killing. It, it has its adverse effects. Okay, so 
there are, I guess, some guidelines. You know, I don't know. I don't even want to call them that, you know, because I don't want to say, okay, pastors, again, pastors, I can do whatever I want. And today he said, I can go get drunk. <laughs> I can drink wine. Okay, so there aren't necessarily guidelines, but just some things that you want to think about. Alcohol, okay, as you're, you're, you're being spirit-filled. Remember that. You're being spirit-filled. And we're talking about alcohol right now. There are a lot of sincere Bible-honoring Christians that justify their drinking on the basis that, you know, well, they had wine in the Bible. So is the wine in the Bible the same as the wine of today? Is it fermented in the same way? Is it the process in the same way? Why would it say it's okay to drink wine in the Bible and maybe not today? Well, there's three types of wine when we see the word wine. It's kind of like the word love. And I've shared that with you. There's agape, there's philo, there's eros. Eros is that erotic love. Philo is the brotherly love. Agape is unconditional love. The kind of love you just, that God gives us without condition. The kind of love you give your child because what a beautiful baby. That baby can't do anything for you, but you love that baby. I love that baby. I love to hear him cry, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't bother me. I'm just saying that. And after I said that, she says, then why did you say anything? Because it bothered me? One kind of wine in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, is sakira. And I think they got sake from this word, sakira in Greek, and shikar in Hebrew. And it's usually translated strong drink because of its high alcohol content level. And, and it was quick to intoxicate those who drank it. And that's talked about in the Bible as far as some kind of wine. But they call it wine and not the strong. Sometimes it's called strong drink. A second kind of wine is gleucos. Gleucos, where we get our word glucose from, sugar, it was a sweet wine. It's the, it's the wine that the apostles were accused of drinking in the morning when they started to preach and the, they started to speak in tongues. And, and all of a sudden people said, those guys are drunk on new wine. Gliocus. And Paul says, it's not even happy hour yet. Come on, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. How can we, we, we're not drunk. What are you talking about? And, uh, and so that's the kind of another wine. And then the third kind of wine is the wine that mainly is talked about in the, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And it's the word uh, for wine is called yayin in Hebrew. But in Greek, it's oinas, oinas, yayin and oinas. And oinas is the wine that Jesus turned the water into oinas. And oinas, or yayin, it's, it's, uh, yayin in Hebrew is this bubbling effect that happened. It's not because the wine is bubbling like champagne, but because of what they would do, the process that it would take to get the wine to the yayin or the oinas state. Oinas was made by grapes, and grapes, what it was done, it was crushed, and instead of letting it ferment and turn into sakura, uh, and instead of letting it ferment, what they, what they would do was they would boil it and boil all the fermentation out of it, boil all the impurities out of it, and they would boil it down to a paste, almost like a jam. And this oinas they would use, sometimes they would use it on their bread, it was kind of, you know, it had a, a weird taste to it, but what they would do is they would take that oinas and get a little bit, maybe 1 to 10 ratio, maybe sometimes even 1 to 20 ratio, and mix it up, kind of like a paste or a concentrated type of juice that you would buy in these big old gallons, you know, that you use at home. And you pour a little bit and a lot of water. And that's the oinas, that's the wine. It had no alcohol in it, very little, if any, you know, if, if any at all. That's the wine that was presented at the, guard, at the wedding with Jesus Christ. That's the wine that is talked about most of the time because the water in the New Testament system was very bad and filled with all kinds of different types of things. And so what they would do is they would, they would take this oinas and they would use it as like in a medicinal sense and put it in the water and, the, and it would purify the water. And it would clear it up, plus it would give it a pleasant taste. 
And so when you start thinking about the wine that is not fermented and the common use of the New Testament oinos and how they used it, you start to realize, okay, so it wasn't really the type of wine that I'm thinking about. You know, it wasn't a margarita. There's no margaritas in the Bible, guys. Okay? It, it wasn't it was in Boone's Farm or what was that? Mad Dog 2020. I'm really going back now. Uh, it wasn't Ripple, you know? Okay, stop it. <laughs> and so... The question, one of the first questions to ask, was the wine of the New Testament, Old Testament, the same as it is today? Definitely not. I mean, there was that type of wine. And it's still, you know, either one you can still use. But the wine that was mainly talked about is the wine, the oinos, that didn't have any contact level of alcohol. Number two, was it necessary? Or is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to have wine? Well, some people say, well, yeah, my doctor said I should have uh, a bottle of wine every day. No, it's a glass of wine. Oh, that's right. It's a glass. Of, you should have a glass of wine once a day because it, it helps with my blood. Okay, well, if it's necessary, it's necessary for some, you know, because of your blood, your sugar, whatever the case may be. And, and, but, but for the most part, it really isn't necessary. Is it the best choice? Beloved, we have so many different things to drink today. So many different things. And it doesn't have to be a non-alcoholic beer. I know that they have those adults and all those other things. Now, how did I know about that? Somebody told me about that. Anyways, I know that there's all these different types of non-alcoholic beverages that you can order and drink, but, but is it necessary, really? You know, a Diet Coke is just as good, or a Coke or whatever, you know? I mean, if you're going to be drinking that kind of stuff, might as well, you know, you know is it habit-forming? Another thing that a Christian should ask himself, is this going to form a habit within me? And if you know anything about alcohol, it is habit-forming. It's very good. As a matter of fact, people wake up hungover and they drink another one to try to get rid of that. And it just creates this cycle that I was there. I was there. And we tried everything. And it is habit forming. Is it potentially destructive? Well, you know it is. Follow the science. It'll tear up your liver, uh, your kidneys. Now, I know some people that have drank all their life. Nothing's happened to them. You know, I, I can't explain that one either. So you can make that argument as well. Will it offend another Christian? You know, and now, now we start getting into a little bit more practical. Is it going to offend somebody if I do this in public? You know, is this something I have to do as I hide because I know that if somebody else sees me or even looks at me, it's going to just offend them? Is it going to offend somebody? You know, don't worry about offending God. God's already offended at our sin every day. You know, I, I remember I came into a, a, I came to a, a birthday party years ago, and, and you know, people say, hey, how you doing? All right, man. What do you, and, you know, the conversation just gets all of a sudden stern. Most of the time, it gets steered to the point of, so what do you do? I said, well, I pastor a church. Oh, brethren, as they have their beer in their hand, how art thou? Thou art uh, doing well, I believe, presumed. Amen. You know, and, you know it's just all of a you know, You're not offending me. You might be offending God, but you're not offending me. And, and is it going to offend other Christians? And, you know, instinctively... If you're a genuine believer, you know, you know that it offends. Will it harm my Christian testimony? Will it? You know it will. Is it the right thing to do? Is it right? Well, again, you can make the argument for or against. And let me ask you the last question. Can I do it before others and before God in total faith and confidence that this is right? If you have no confidence within your heart and you know that with all that I had just said, and if you still think it's right, then and you have total confidence before God, and you really think that God says it's okay, then drink it like water. Now, once I've said that, here's the thing. This is not what Paul is talking about. What? <laughs> Paul is not talking about this moral dilemma that you're involved in. 
This is not talking, Paul is not talking about the things that are going on in the culture. What Paul is talking about, and what he's trying to get across, is that during the time of the Ephesians, and I've shared this with you sometimes, they had this God named Dionysius. Dionysius was supposedly the ruler of the world, that uh, the mother, and you can see the parallels to this, you know, it's a Greek God of Jupiter and of the Romans, and it was this whole thing of how Zeus, either Jupiter or Zeus, whoever, you know, the Greeks, Jupiter, Zeus, the Romans, it's the same God, and there's been variations of it in other cultures. He impregnated this woman, and she got pregnant, and she wanted to know who did it. And so she went out looking for this God that got her pregnant, and the moment she found who he was, his glory or his greatness incinerated her. And before the child was was killed or died in the fire, Zeus grabbed the child and implanted it in his leg and gave birth. And this child was grew up in the world, and he became the ruler of the world, and so on and so forth. And this god, Dionysius, this god was worshipped by the Romans as the ruler of the world. He was worshipped in such a sense where you would go to these temples and have a good time. There would be prostitutes, temple prostitutes, to be able to have sex with them so that your lands can be fertilized as you would have this, these orgies and these sexual encounters with these women, these priestesses is what they were called. And they would do this all in the drunken stupor of wine. And they would get so drunk and so out of their minds and, and they would start wailing and talking in weird languages. And this mystical religion that appeared to them has been pushed down through all generations. And they would dance and they would sing and they would jump up and down. They would holler, they would roll all over the floor and they would do all these things because they were doing it unto their God. So they thought. And so this drunkenness was some of the things that they would take with them as far as also maybe a temple prostitute or two to take them to their house. Say, hey, honey, you know, we're going to have good lands because look what I brought home. I brought home a bunch of wine and we're going to have fun. And they would do this in, their, in front of their own shrines at their homes and they would continuously get drunk and worship their God. You see, what Paul is talking about is exactly that. Do not get that kind of out of control. You want control? You want to be controlled by the gods of this age? You want to be controlled by what's going on in this world? As a matter of fact, he told this to the uh, people in Corinth. In Corinth, the people were coming to the church and having the Lord's Supper, as we're going to have today. And they would come to the service, and some people would come drunk. Some people would come you know, to eat all the food because they wanted to get all of the gods inside of them, or God himself. They genuinely thought that if they came drunk, they'd be, be able to worship even better. And so they were filled with the Spirit, so they thought, and they would speak and on this, this, un, 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 uh, this language that was not understood. They would, they would dance and they would do all kinds of crazy things. This is why Paul had to address the filling of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in three chapters. In three chapters, chapters 12, chapters 13, and chapters 14, this is not the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is not what the Holy Spirit does to an individual. And especially when you're coming, one gets drunk and one eats all the food. And, and by the time everybody gets here, you guys are all just a mess. That is not an orderly house. God is a God of order. Paul concludes in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And so what Paul is dealing with here. I mean, the moral issue of drinking is, is something that we needed to touch on. But what Paul is addressing is a spiritual issue. Don't be controlled by anything else than the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled as the pagans do in their former pagan days, the way they used to do, and, and how they used to do this idolatrous rites and practices and, and all this part of their temple worship that came from Babylon and they continue to do today. And a lot of that 
In some churches, you can still see that without the wine. But you can see this trance-like situation that people get into, this falling and crying and leaping and jumping and hollering and laughing and all these things that they apparently do according to what they believe is being filled by the Spirit. So a Spirit-filled church is not controlled by anything else. A Spirit-filled church is controlled by the Holy Spirit Himself. Paul wasn't present at the time of the of Pentecost, okay? Paul wasn't present, and so, but he had in mind, I'm sure, the event that took place in Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, again in your outlines, uh, verse 4, it says, and you know the story, the disciples were in the upper room, and they were praying early in the morning, and then all of a sudden, there was like the sound of rushing wind that came through the whole building, and everybody heard it, not only inside, but outside, and they go, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came down upon them, and the Holy Spirit, and it was like, and it was like these tongues of fire on their head. They didn't have tongues of fire on their head. There was something that made them very identifiable. There was something glowing about them, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these 120 individuals in the upper room. Something you need to know about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come down upon an individual. And He would come down on one individual at one time for a specific reason, for a specific purpose, at a specific time. And He would come down and He would empower that individual, like David, for instance, like Samson, another instance, uh, like Moses. You know, He would come and He would empower that individual when this person was totally dedicated to God. And when they were dedicated to God, God will empower that individual for a certain specific task. And after the task was gone, the Holy Spirit would leave them. Just like David would pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, this is just amazing. It's, it's awesome to know that I can accomplish these great things for your kingdom. And God says, that's as far as I need to take you. That's as far as I need to go. And so the Holy Spirit would, would come and they would, he would fall upon them, and the Holy Spirit came down in chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's important to recognize here that the writer, Luke, that's writing the book of Acts, when he says they were all filled, not just one, like they did in the Old Testament, all of them were filled. And they began to speak in other tongues, glossolalia, as the Spirit gave them utterance, apothegnia, apothegnia, is, is, the, is the word of utter or to speak or to say something, proclaim. And it's only used three times in the New Testament. And every time that it's used, it is used to say or to proclaim or to declare or to speak. People have taken this old archaic word that is in your King James Version, even in the English Standard Version, and they say utterance means speaking in tongues. Utterance means all this gibberish that we speak. All this gibberish that is going on, that's what utterance is. The word utterance basically says to say, to speak continuously. Because if there was this language that people profess to be speaking, it would be common to us in the New Testament. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, go with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says, uh, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verses 5 and on. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the sound of the rushing wind and all this utterance that was going on. And at this sound, verse 6. 
the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them in his own language. There were people from all walks of the world. Well, how many languages were there? Well, I'm glad you asked. And, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these speaking Galilean? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and the Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. How many? Sixteen, if you want to count them. Sixteen different languages that is posted in the New Testament, and not one of them was a language unintelligible. Not one of them was a language that was not understood. They understood what was being proclaimed. What was being proclaimed? The mighty works of God. And the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak to a person that didn't know about Jesus Christ in their native language. Now, I don't know exactly how that happened. The Bible says here that they heard while they spoke. Did their language get transferred or transposed in the process of the speaking of it? Or did it get transferred or transposed in, in their hearing as they were listening to it? And was it transformed in such a way? And so the whole utterance part was the speaking and continuous, and they continued to speak. Whoa, how am I doing this? Well, the Holy Spirit gave them power. And it continued. Acts, the book of Acts is a uh, transitional book from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, we've gone over this quite a bit. And I'm just kind of giving you the cliff notes right now. But in the New Testament, all of a sudden, they are now no longer Jewish by religion. They are now something else. This is why that something else was being persecuted by Saul, first of all, or also, and by everybody else. They were getting persecuted because they were coming out of this traditional Jewish religion. We've been doing this for the last 8,000 years, 4,000 years, and now you're telling us we got to change? and we got to follow this guy that was crucified? Doesn't the Bible say, doesn't the Old Testament say that cursed is the man who hangs on a tree? You want us to worship this man that is cursed? Come on. you got to understand that these guys had a valid point. And they had a valid point because God is one. Shema Israel, Adonai Alechinu, Adonai Ahad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Just one. Now you're telling us he's two. And so you got to understand, they're, you know, this is not right. They're, they're, they, were, they were upset, they were mad, and that's why they wanted to kill these guys. And, and so as they went through the New Testament proclaiming, they come across people that didn't understand in their language, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak that. And when they heard, they were saved. As many as were appointed to hear the gospel were saved. And they received the Holy Spirit as well. And they were able to speak in an unintelligible language, a language that they can share with somebody else. And they went to the next set of group, the group of people, the disciples of John. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? No. Well, they prayed for them, laid their hands on them, and they received the gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't say how many of them, but there was a few of them. And they were given the same ability. You see, beloved, it, it, it transitions in the New Testament. Something miraculous had to happen in order for people to understand that God was at work here. This feeling of the Holy Spirit, this feeling of the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. As a matter of fact, and we're going to get into this next week, 
more so. It's not something that you feel. What the Bible does is and shows us in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that you have been baptized into the body of Christ. People have misread that and preached it and taught it that you get baptized by the Holy Spirit. You don't get baptized by the Holy Spirit. You get indwelt. You, get, you, you are to be filled. The moment you become a Christian, the moment you cross over the line, the moment you, 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 you commit your life to Christ, the moment that you say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have sinned and I have gravely offended you. And I, I no longer want to walk that way. The Holy Spirit takes residence in your life. And He baptizes you into the church, the body of Christ. For, for really, to be honest with you, that's not a feeling. That's a practical stance. That's a positional stance. That is what you are. You are positionally now in the body of Christ. Just like when you came into this church building through that door, you didn't feel anything because you came in and you're sitting down. And, uh, you know, some of you probably are hungry, <laughs> tired, whatever the case may be. But the Holy Spirit didn't do anything to the individuals as far as, this ecstatic feeling as, as some people go out and proclaiming it. You know, and they, they say, that's the manifestation of the Spirit. No, it's not. It's a manifestation of some Spirit. I really don't know what Spirit, but that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit places you positionally forever into the body of Christ. He baptizes you into. He sets you and baptized, covered, dipped into, under, all the way in. You are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The command here is not to get baptized. There is no commandment to get baptized by the Spirit. There is no commandment to get uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no commandment to get sealed. There is no commandment to get regenerated. There is no, the only commandment that God has given us is to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And I want to share that with you. Because being filled by the Holy Spirit is the same as being filled by the Word of God. Let me just share this very quickly and then we're going to conclude here. Going back to Acts, uh, excuse me, going back to Ephesians chapter 5, when I, where I left off at. Giving thanks always for everyone. Well, let me, let me go back one more. Address, addressing everyone, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the church. And then it goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. And then it says in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. We're going to get into this. This part right here, beloved, this part right here cannot be done and is not done in some churches because you need the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember one day I preached this message and a woman came up to me and she says, you know what, that part of the Bible, I ripped it out. I tore it out of the Bible. I ain't submitting to no man. Well, you're not understanding what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach you. Let me have you go back, go to Colossians. Colossians is um, a couple of books to the right. Uh, it's Philippians and then Colossians. In Col oh. Wrong chapter. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to start in verse 14. And it says this. Oh, well, yeah, verse 14. 
And above all, after he finished giving these directions that he just gave, and we're going to be going over this later. Chapter 3, verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands, and so on. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. This is almost identical to what Paul just said to us. But he's telling the people in Corinth, instead of saying to them, be filled with the Holy Spirit, what he is saying, once again, in verse 16, let the word of Christ, what? Dwell in you richly. The Holy Spirit, the word of Christ, dwells within the individual. I'm going to go back to what I started off with. This document, beloved, is the most important document in your life. When you understand it, when you study it, when you read it, when you memorize it, when you play it over in your mind, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. And it causes you and it helps you to make wise decisions, not foolish decisions. You don't walk in darkness, you walk in light. You don't act like the world, you act like the Word says for God to, to act like. You see all these comparisons? You're not getting drunk or controlled by anything else. Now, let's just put alcohol off, off the table for now. You're not getting drunk by anything. You're not being controlled by, by culture, by what people say or what anything. You're being controlled by the Word of God. When the Word of God dwells within you, the Word of Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit, you are Spirit-filled, and it's not a feeling. It's just a positional statement. And sometimes you'll feel, you know, wow, I can't believe I did that. And when God's Word comes out of your lips to minister to loved ones, and, and help them understand that you cannot live this life without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about. And so he takes a little bit of time in Ephesians, more than he does in Colossians, but he takes a little bit of time explaining why it's important for husbands to love their wives, why it's important for wives to be responsive. We'll change that word, submit, responsive to their husbands. Why it's important for children to obey their parents. Amen? You guys want to bring some kids on that Sunday? Why it's important for the kids, the children, to be obedient. Why it's important for fathers not to exasperate your children. In other words, don't cause things in their life that's going to get them, you know, confused. You know? Do as I say, not as I do. Here, here's a cigarette. Bring me another beer. You talk about being confused. Wait a minute, you're telling me not to do that, but you're going to do it? You know, Dad, there's somebody at the door. Who, oh, I owe, you know what? That's, that's Jeff from next door. I owe money. Tell him I'm not here. Okay. Uh, my, dad, my dad's not here. All right. And then he comes up to you and he lies to you. Why are you lying to me? You know you shouldn't be lying. Really? I'm talking about being confused. Exactly. And so when you understand the process with the Holy the Holy Spirit is not here to make you feel good and give you goosebumps and give you a zap. Boom, you're done. Get a, whole, get a dose of the Holy Ghost and go home, hipping and scopping and walk out the door and cussing and yelling at everybody else. That's not what the feeling the Holy Spirit does, beloved. If that's what you believe, you're, you've been, I'm sorry, you've been misled. The Holy Spirit is here to help you proclaim the Word of God in a language that people can understand. Let me ask you to stand.
I told you I wasn't going to get through this. Let's all bow our heads. Bowing your heads doesn't make you any more spiritual. Just as closing your eyes doesn't either. But it does help you focus a little bit more upon what was just spoken. And you have verses there, and, and we're going to go over this some more. Because I believe it's important. And when Paul says to be filled by the Holy Spirit, he's not, a, he's not asking us to, you know, maybe think about it. He's not saying, you know, he, you know, here's a suggestion. This is a command. A command from God. Be filled. In the original Greek, it's, it's present, present participle that's going forward and continues on. Be being kept filled. That just doesn't sound right in English, but that's what it says. Be being kept filled. Let this be continuous. Always. And when you do this, you do not have time to run into any other problems. You'll know how to manage your children, your family, your wife, your, your husband. You'll know how to manage life. Because exactly, Lord, you've called us into this world, this dark world, to be light. And if we continue to follow the world and not the word, and if we follow this culture and not Christ, then yes, we're not going to be filled. Every time that we are not filled, we automatically revert back to what we know best, or what we used to know, our, our feeling, our language, our time, our friends, and everything else. Lord, we need to separate ourselves. And the only way possible is through your Spirit. And I pray, Father, that there is uh, an understanding, and not only that, a manifestation of this Spirit-filled church, a church that is willing to go the distance and do whatever it takes to proclaim your word to a dying world. There's so much confusion out there, Lord. And right now, I pray first and foremost, the very first thing that we talked about is, is the salvation. That those that are understanding even more so your word and start to realize that they live in sin, that they repent, that repentance be a, the first and foremost thing in people's lives, and then allow your spirit to work within their life. Because repentance is the fruit of salvation. And repentance, a changed life, is evidence of a redeemed life. And so, Father, this morning, as we conclude today's sermon and the message that you've given us, I pray that you help us to get to that point of understanding redemption. It's not by my will. It's what you're doing right now in your people's lives. That you are the Redeemer. And we are the responsive ones. And we, you will hold us responsible. And you will hold us responsible. And so, Father, I pray for redemption. I pray for, uh, for renouncing. Lord, I pray that you help every person here repent. Plain and simple. There is no knocking on our door. There is no decision I have to raise up my hand. There is no prayer that I have to pray. I just got to turn. There is no special words or magical words that I have to do. I just have to repent. And as I leave this place, every choice that I make from that point forward is based upon your word. And I don't have to know all the Bible to know that being drunk is, is a sin. I don't have to understand the whole Bible to know that lying is not right. Or living a promiscuous life. 
or a life that just disobeys and doesn't want to do anything that you say. I, I don't have to know the Bible to know those things, Lord. I don't have to know the whole Bible to know that, that cussing and yelling and screaming at people is not right. I just have to repent. And so, Father, I come here. I come here to learn what the Christian walk is all about. And I know that your power, your Holy Spirit is going to help me walk that walk. I've fallen many times, Lord. I am a sinner. I, I sin and, and you pick me back up. But I don't stay there. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us here, we can learn how not to continue to walk in that way. There's only one of two ways. Help us to walk in the Spirit. So, Father, thank you once again for today as we continue on in this study of Ephesians. That you continue to lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right. Please stick around for the Lord's Supper.